This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hello, my name is Tracy Woodruff. I'm a professor in the Department of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences, and I'm the director of the Program on Reproductive Health and the Environment. And today I'm going to talk about climate, pollution, and prenatal and child health. The mission of the Program on Reproductive Health and the Environment is to create a healthier environment for human reproduction and development by advancing scientific inquiry, clinical care, and health policies that prevent exposure to harmful chemicals in our environment. I have nothing to disclose, except I'd like to say thank you to Drs. Linda Judis and Maria Zlatnik, who helped me with the content of this presentation. Climate change is here. We know that there has been increasing temperatures which have led to ecological changes which have impacted wildlife. And due to rising temperatures, we have seen also contributions to extreme weather events and conditions such as droughts, which have led to many different types of disasters in our environment, including the increase of wildfires and other types of natural related events. Contributions to climate change in the United States from greenhouse gas emissions are primarily made up of transportation, which contribute about 30% of greenhouse gas emissions, and electricity production and industry, which contribute almost 50% of greenhouse gas emissions, primarily through coal and natural gas emissions and use. These sources that emit carbon dioxide, which is a contributor to greenhouse gas emissions, are also sources that can increase the levels of air pollution in our atmosphere, including ozone and particulate matter. These air pollutants can also contribute to warming effects, and then these increasing temperatures can have the feedback loop of also leading to more stagnant air, which can trap ground-level pollution like ozone, and higher temperatures, which also can contribute to ozone formation. The impact of climate change on health is many including changes in vector ecology, so increasing infectious diseases, increasing allergens, water quality impacts, impacts on water and food supply, environmental degradation, extreme heat, severe weather, and something I'm gonna talk a few more minutes about, which is air pollution. Climate change can influence pregnancy. The problem is is that climate change can worsen air pollution and extreme weather, which can have severe impacts on health during and after pregnancy, including increasing risk of preterm birth, low birth weight, stillbirth, and can also affect brain development. Particulate matter air pollution, which is one of the primary pollutants of concern for health effects, which are fine inhalable particles, are mostly formed in the atmosphere that come from the same pollutants that contribute to greenhouse gas emissions, including power plants, industry, and automobiles. Prenatal exposure to particulate matter air pollution, particularly these fine respirable particles, PM2.5, can increase the risk of preterm birth, low birth weight, and stillbirth. This is from a study that I participated in that was published in 2015 that looked at the influence of the Beijing Olympics on air pollution levels in China. As you can see from this chart, that during the Beijing Olympics, because of controls that the Chinese government put in place on industries and transportation, the levels of air pollutants went down in 2008 during the Olympics that were lower than they were in 2007. They subsequently started to increase in 2009 after the Olympics were over. We were able to look at the change in low birth weight due to the changes in the air pollutant levels that were due to the changes that were made for the Olympics in Beijing. And what we found that as the levels of air pollution increased after the Beijing Olympics, we also saw an increase in low birth weight. So in, for example, a 20 microgram per meter increase in PM2.5, which was an increasing levels after the controls were taking off for the Beijing Olympics, led to a, a decrement in birth weight among the term births in this study. There've also been a number of studies looking at aggregating the many studies that have been done looking at prenatal air pollution exposures and preterm birth risk. This is from a study that was published showing that globally using numbers from 2010, the number of PM 2.5 associated preterm birth was estimated to be 2.7 million preterm births, which was about 18% of total preterm births globally. Air pollution is also associated 
when exposures occur during the prenatal period with heart birth defects, autism, and neurodevelopmental delays. Air pollution exposures during pregnancy can also increase the risk of maternal health complications. Studies have shown that air pollution is linked to preeclampsia and hypertension during pregnancy. These are both important maternal health outcomes that are also leading causes of maternal death. There's a very important other link between the contributors to climate change and other types of chemicals in our environment. That is the relationship between fracking gas, cheap oil, unburnable coal, and plastics. Plastics generation and recovery in the U.S. has been increasing since the 1960s. And with the increasing use of fracking and natural gas, these are a feed supply chain to intermediate products that are used as plasticizers. Intermediate products include chemicals like vinyl chloride, ethylene glycol, styrene, polystyrene, and phthalates. These are then used to make plastics that are pretty ubiquitous in our everyday lives, including uh, plastics used in cars, adhesives, coatings, and films, plastics used in food packaging, plastics used in your home like pool liners, sealants, carpet backing, insulation, and plastics used in footwear, clothes, diapers, stockings, and textiles. I'm going to talk a little bit more about one of these feedstock chemicals, phthalates. Phthalates are an industrial chemical. They're produced from the same sources that are used in fuel production or fracking, and they also are an industrial chemical that are used in many different types of plastic applications. Phthalates are also an endocrine-disrupting chemical, and they have been shown to adversely impact testosterone levels in the body. Some of the health effects that are linked to phthalates include male reproductive health effects, such effects on sperm quality, reduced fertility, learning and behavior effects, and obesity and diabetes. Each one of these effects are also chronic diseases that have been increasing in the population. Further, because of the ubiquitous use of phthalates, everybody is exposed to some different types of phthalates. Studies that we have done have shown that when you measure phthalates in biological samples from people, they're found in pretty much 100% of the people that are measured in the United States. Phthalates are just one of the many industrial chemicals that are linked to fossil fuel production um, that we come into contact with every day and, and in many ways in our everyday lives. So chemical production is increasing in the United States. We know that pregnant women are exposed to multiple different types of chemicals and plasticizers and that these chemicals pass the placenta and are, the baby is exposed even before being born. This is why doctors globally are recommending that we do more to prevent exposures to toxic chemicals. This is from a statement from the International Federation of Gynecology and Obstetricians. And they say that environmental chemicals, pollution, and climate change are adversely affecting prenatal and child health. And they recommend advocating for policies to prevent exposure to toxic environmental chemicals, work to ensure a healthy food system, make environment part of healthcare, and champion environmental justice. Societal change is possible. This is an example from the Clean Air Act, which was updated in 1990. And what that law said was that we had to identify uh, primary pollutants, how they were affecting health, and then take actions to reduce those pollutants. So as you can see on the bottom chart, with the green line going down, that because of this law and the public policies that came from that law, there has been a reduction in these common air pollutants, which include ozone and PM since the 1990s, while at the same time, growing gross domestic product, vehicle miles traveled, and population. However, we've also seen an increase in energy consumption, and this is where we need to be focusing in terms of contribution to both climate change and pollutants that can adversely impact health. So in conclusion, there is a link between contributors to climate change and air and chemical pollution. We are all exposed to effects of climate change through increasing temperature, and exposures to air pollution and chemical pollution. And these exposures can impact maternal and child health. We need healthcare providers to be prepared to address these climate-related disasters as well as effects of air pollution and chemical pollution and to advocate on behalf of their patients. And in particular, it is necessary for us to have strong public policies in order to create lasting and fair solutions for all. And with that, I'd like to thank you for participating in this very important event. Hi, my name is Dr. Single. I'm a pediatrician down in the Santa Clara Valley Medical Center, 
And today my talk is gonna be on children's unique vulnerability to climate change. So first of all, why children? According to the WHO, across the world, one in five deaths each year occurs in a child younger than five years old. As these graphs illustrate, children suffer a much greater burden of the disease, of climate-related disease, than do adults. A much higher percentage of their deaths are due to consequences of climate change, including worsened malnutrition and food insecurity, diarrhea, malaria, and other vector-borne diseases, and lower respiratory tract infections. As precipitation and flooding events worsen, as air quality deteriorates, as droughts worsen and food scarcity grows, all of these are expected to worsen. We can also look at dailies or disability adjusted life years to understand the disproportionate impact that climate change has on children. One daily represents the loss of the equivalent of one year of full health, either through death or enduring disability. Using dailies, we can see that when factoring in both climate events that cause death and those that cause persisting ill health, children bear an even greater share of the burden created by climate change. To understand why children have greater vulnerability and health impacts from climate change events, we'll use this great framework from a climate and health assessment conducted by the US Global Change Research Program in 2016. We'll explore each of these categories, exposure, sensitivity, and adaptability in more depth. So first, exposure. Exposure is contact between a person and one or more biologic, psychosocial, chemical, or physical stressors, including stressors affected by climate change. Children have a higher exposure to toxins and climate change disease than do adults for a number of reasons. Kids have higher exposure per unit of body weight. They breathe more air, drink more water, and eat more food per unit of body weight compared to adults. This means they have a higher proportional exposure to all the contaminants and toxins in that air, water, and food. In fact, in the first six months of life, children drink seven times more water per kilo of body weight compared to adults. Children also have unique behaviors that put them at higher risk for exposures. They spend more time outside than adults. They crawl around, put their hands in their mouth. Up to 11% of toddlers may exhibit pica behavior, which is the consumption of non-food items, including soil and dust, that put them especially at risk for exposure to lead and other toxins in that soil. Next, we'll cover the unique sensitivity of children as pertains to climate-related illness. We'll spend the bulk of our talk here. Sensitivity is the degree to which people or communities are affected, either adversely or beneficially, by climate variability or change. Children are not mini adults. They have differences in their baseline metabolism and physiology that puts them at increased risk for climate-related diseases. For instance, young children may not have yet built up a functional immunity from repeated exposures to mild illness. As such, they may suffer from higher complication rates than adults when exposed to serious strains of the same disease. For instance, children often have higher complication rates from malaria than do adults with problems ranging from severe anemia, irreversible hearing impairment, cerebral palsy, epilepsy, and more. Children are also at higher risk for complications from heat waves through a combination of factors, including increased surface area to body mass ratio, which causes a greater heat gain from the environment on a hot day, increased metabolic heat production from physical exercise, which increases their core temperature, and decreased sweating capacity, which reduces their ability to dissipate body heat by evaporation. The impacts of these were demonstrated in the 2006 California heat wave, when emergency department visits for heat-related causes increased across the whole state, but especially in the elderly and in children younger than four. There are also unique windows of development during which climate-related events can have especially lasting impacts. For instance, malnutrition. 35% of excess child mortality is attributed to malnutrition, a risk factor expected to worsen with climate change because of increasing food insecurity. Malnourishment and vitamin deficiencies can have many lasting impacts on health, including rickets, 
poor bone health, blindness, immune deficiency, poor wound healing, loss of brain neurons, etc. Early exposure to toxins can also cause irreversible damage, such as lead. Lead can have lasting neuro problems, including loss of IQ, learning and behavior problems, and also kidney and bone health effects. Children are especially at risk as they absorb more lead due to the fact that they often have concurrent iron deficiency, which can predispose one to lead absorption. Mercury can also have toxic effects on the nervous, digestive, and immune systems, and on lungs, kidneys, skin, and eyes. Endocrine disruptors may contribute to increased risk of testicular cancer, hypospadias, and early onset puberty. Air pollutants are also a large concern, as from wildfires and motor vehicle emissions. In the short term, such pollutants are linked to increased asthma exacerbations. Asthma is already a large contributor to childhood morbidity across the world. According to the CDC, in 2013, in the United States, nearly 7 million children, or about 9% of our pediatric population, suffered from asthma. And in that same year, asthma accounted for over 13 million missed school days. In the long term, air pollutants can cause irreversible damage to lung maturation through airway inflammation, such as bronchiolitis, similar to what's observed in the airways of smokers, and also restriction of the growth of alveoli, which are those tiny air sacs in the bottom of lungs that allow for the exchange of oxygen for carbon dioxide. Lung development and the growth of airways continues into adolescence, but is almost fully complete by 18 to 20 years old. So it's unlikely that clinically significant damages could be reversed as children transition into adulthood. The psychological impact of climate change is also tremendous in children. Exposure to traumatic events like floods and wildfires can impact children's ability to regulate emotions, undermine their cognitive development and academic performance, and contribute to post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, anxiety, panic, and phobias. Even chronic exposure to non-traumatic climate events can have psychological impacts. A 2015 study out of Cincinnati, Ohio, showed that on days with higher exposure to fine particulate matter, children had higher rates of emergency room visits for adjustment disorder and suicide. It's thought that perhaps that fine particulate matter can cause inflammation of the neurons in the central nervous system and in turn affect processing, anxiety, cognition, and behavior. In addition to the psychological trauma of climate-related events, repeated stressors can result in biologic changes. To understand these, we'll touch briefly on ACEs, or Adverse Childhood Events. ACEs are those events to which intense, frequent, and or sustained exposure without the buffer of a caring and able adult can lead to something called toxic stress. Toxic stress is essentially the dysregulation of body systems that do not return to normal, even after the adverse event is over. This is again because of children's sensitive periods of development. Exposure to ACEs in this time can have lasting effects. In children, ACEs and toxic stress have been correlated with dental problems, lifetime asthma, ADHD, autism, obesity, and learning difficulties. They've also been associated with violent behavior including delinquent behavior, bullying, physical violence, dating violence, and more. The more ACEs a child experiences, the higher their risk of these and other health problems throughout their life. Traditional ACEs fall into domains such as abuse, neglect, mental illness or incarceration of caregivers, domestic violence, and substance abuse. But there's an increased understanding that climate change creates personal and family trauma that contributes to toxic stress and triggers the feedback loops that expand and aggravate these ACEs. So finally, we come to adaptability. Adaptive capacity is the ability of communities, institutions, or people to adjust to potential hazards, to take advantage of opportunities, or to respond to consequences. Children have a very limited ability to adapt to hazards associated with climate change. They may understand less about hazardous situations, 
have less experience coping with difficult situations, and have less actual and perceived control over events. They are almost completely dependent on caregivers with very little independence. They are deeply affected by the health and well-being of their caregivers and the decision-making of those caregivers. Finally, adaptability is hugely affected by the context in which we live. Children often have no control over their geographic location, which may put them at higher risk for certain climate change disasters. Low-lying coastal regions are at much higher risk for flooding. Drier regions, like the southern and western U.S., are at higher risk for heat waves. Breadbasket regions are at higher risk for droughts and the attendant malnutrition and famine. Children may also live in poverty, which has been shown to decrease the ability to respond or to escape from extreme weather events. There's also the question of environmental injustice, which is defined as the inequitable and disproportionately heavy exposure of poor, minority, and disenfranchised populations to toxic chemicals and other environmental hazards. Environmental injustice contributes to health disparities, especially in infants and young children. For example, in New York City, six of the seven diesel bus depots are located near disadvantaged populations in Harlem or East Harlem. These depots are places where buses may idle for hours while emitting pollutants. And unsurprisingly, hospital admission rates for asthma are 21 times higher in these poorer communities compared to their wealthier ones. The effects of climate change on children, on all of us, are real and they can be overwhelming. But there are things that we can and need to do to address this issue at multiple levels. We'll frame things in terms of primary, secondary, and tertiary prevention of climate change events and disease and discuss each of these in the next few slides. So first we'll talk about primary prevention, which refers to slowing or stopping the development of climate change. This type of prevention falls into two large categories our personal choices, and systemic decisions. Action at both levels are both important and necessary. In terms of our personal choices, we can act to shrink our own carbon footprint. We can invest in renewable energy and in energy-efficient appliances, decrease our food waste, use public transportation. But we can also promote systemic change, holding our leaders responsible for regulatory standards that ensure clean soil, water, and air. We can also support measures that make it easier for us to do the right thing through things like smarter urban planning that promotes public transportation, mixed residential and commercial housing, bike lanes, etc. Even as we try to prevent climate change, some events will still occur that we must contend with. Secondary prevention refers to the actions that we can take to help prevent our children from being affected by heat waves, vector-borne illness, and air pollution. Parents can help protect their children from negative effects of heat waves by reducing their activities on very hot and humid days, making sure they stay very well hydrated, and having them wear light-colored and lightweight clothing that does not promote as much heat absorption. To reduce the impact of mosquitoes and other vectors that carry illness, we can use mosquito repellents wear long sleeve clothes, use bed nets, and check children for ticks after play outside, especially in the warm months. To reduce the impact of air pollution, we can monitor air quality and pollen counts, reducing outdoor play on days when those levels rise. And finally, we can act at the level of tertiary prevention. These are the actions we take to reduce the impact of ongoing climate-related illness and disease once they've already happened. For instance, once air pollution has already contributed to a child's asthma, we can help prevent further asthma flares and exacerbations by teaching families what the warning signs of an asthma attack are, what medications to use, etc. We often use a red-yellow-green asthma action plan, like the one shown to the right, to help parents understand which meds to use when and when to seek professional help. As a society, we can help support communities most affected by climate change. These include coastal communities after flooding events, communities in drought after heat waves, and those affected by other natural disasters worsened by climate change. Support could be in the form of advocacy, monetary donations, or other creative means. 
we can also help kids who are affected by climate change and disease. Specifically, the CDC offers tips on caring for a child after a disaster. They recommend giving your child opportunities to talk about what they went through, encouraging them to share their concerns, limiting their exposure to mass media coverage of disasters and its aftermath, helping them feel safe and calm, and allowing them to be involved in volunteer efforts to the extent that's appropriate to their age and developmental stage. And of course, children should always be referred to a professional therapist or psychiatrist if they do not seem to be improving, if their schoolwork continues to be affected, or if parents have any other concerns. So in summary, children are especially and uniquely vulnerable to the disease and illness wrought by climate change through their increased exposures, increased sensitivities, and decreased adaptive capacity. While it may sound daunting, there are things we can and must do to act at multiple levels, including the prevention of climate change, the prevention of disease resulting from climate change that does come to pass, and finally, the reduction of the impact those diseases have on our children's continuing health. And that's it. Thank you very much. Hello everyone, I'm Anna Chodos. I'm an assistant professor in geriatrics and it's a real pleasure today to be part of the course on climate change and health impacts. My role today is to talk about the special risks to older adults as part of this joint presentation and panel discussion. I wanna start with a recent article that focused on how clinical providers like myself can address climate change in clinical practice. And not surprisingly to me, the example was that of an older person during a heat wave. Sweat was beating on the forehead of the emergency medical technician as he wheeled in an elderly man with a reported fever whose apparent confusion had led his wife to call 911. In the midst of a record-breaking heat wave, the pair was found in a top floor apartment with no air conditioning and only one partially open window. The man was transferred to a bed where a rectal thermometer registered nearly 106 degrees Fahrenheit. We diagnosed heat stroke and rushed him to our highest urgency area to begin cooling him. While this article was about the general health effects of climate change and how the healthcare system and healthcare providers need to be prepared and trained, for me as a geriatrician, I was not surprised to see that an older adult was someone who suffered from a, a recent heat wave. And I think all of us have seen examples highlighted pretty dramatically in the news of older adults who suffer because of climate-related emergencies. For example, during the recent wildfires in our area here in Northern California, Coffee Park was a big focus um, as the wildfires tore through it in 2017. And in fact, that was a retirement community. Many of the people there were older. When you look at who died in those fires that year, we see that out of 44 deaths, I was able to find 40 people and their stories. And 29 of those 40 people, or 73%, were adults over the age of 60. And something that we're going to come back to is what makes older people and their support systems vulnerable. So I included Sally Lewis and Teresa Santos's story here, as well as Jane Gardner and Elizabeth Foster. Sally Lewis and Teresa... After a herring rescue attempt, Lewis and her caretaker, Teresa Santos, was overtaken by the Alice Peak fire. And here again, Jane and Elizabeth. Gardner died in the fire that destroyed her home October 9th and killed her longtime caregiver, Miss Foster. So even as we think about older adults as special populations, who a special population that's more vulnerable to climate emergencies, we're also thinking about their support systems, particularly folks like myself who work in geriatric. I don't know if many of you saw this incredibly viral video that went around of a community of older adults in an assisted living when they were overwhelmed by flooding, sudden flooding in September 2017 in Texas. The story was in 10 minutes, the water was waist deep. They had no time to evacuate. They were ultimately evacuated by the National Guard and quickly and safely but I think this picture illustrates immediately some of the challenges that older adults can face, particularly when they have other factors like disability. 
And now we're entering an era of the unknown. I'm not implying that coronavirus and COVID-19 is a climate-related emergency, but I think a lot of us have seen and talked about how older people have been particularly vulnerable to this virus, not just because of the nature of the virus or some biological mechanism, but actually because some of the social factors and environmental factors that are making them vulnerable. And so that's something else I wanna talk about today. And finally, um, this has been, recently there's been much news of course with the many climate emergencies, particularly I think for us in Northern California, we've really felt, felt that with the wildfires. But even in Katrina, it was clear that older adults were suffering and affected more than younger adults, particularly in terms of morbidity and mortality. So 60% of deaths related to that hurricane and related flooding were among people 65 and older. So today I'm gonna talk briefly about why an older adult would have special characteristics or unique characteristics that we wanna think about as we learn more and plan more for climate emergencies. And then specifically how those factors are interacting with the emergencies we're anticipating and how it's gonna impact their health. This is the whole reason for my career, the demographic imperative. We are an aging society. We are moving quickly in most parts of the country towards at least one-fifth of our population in a given city or rural area that's 65 and older. And the trajectory, here we are in 2020, so to 2050 over the next 30 years, is a clear increase in those 65 and older and an ongoing and frankly steeper increase in those 85 and older. Total numbers of 85 and older will be lower, but um, actually a steeper increase in that population. And that's has thought to have been uh, mostly due to the tremendous gains we've had in life expectancy and the fact that we simply have more people living into their late 80s and beyond. But it definitely means um, that as a society and certainly as clinicians like myself, we need to be thinking about older adults as we plan for the overlying climate emergencies that are gonna be evolving. So let's take a moment so I can explain what I mean by older adult and get into some of those special factors. Why do I say older adult? I think you'll see all over the news, senior, elder, elderly. Um, what is the real term? In geriatrics, we prefer older adult because it's relative and speaks to the fact that it's part of a spectrum of age. And because many people who are in their 60s and older prefer the term. But I often get asked, you know, when should I be seeing a geriatrician or how do I know I'm older? Um, and I think, in fact, with the COVID emergency, we've seen a lot of people are surprised to find out they're older and they're in the vulnerable age group. They don't feel older. They don't feel vulnerable. They feel um, they feel uh, energetic and um robust uh, and thriving, for example. And I think they associate needing, uh, needing the label older um, when they don't have those factors. What is true is that the older demographic is a hugely variable and heterogeneous group. As a geriatrician, I really don't think about age. I think about the other factors that impact that person's health and well-being and function in the community. So age is helpful, it's good to know. Um, I certainly don't ignore age, but it's, it's certainly not the only thing I'm thinking about when I'm trying to understand a person and how best to work with them. And then to point out that there is some indication that some conditions in life or social risk factors actually accelerate geriatric syndrome. So things that we tend to see more commonly with age, like functional disability or more chronic conditions or cognitive impairment. And so for example, when we are doing research in people who have experienced homelessness or are living with HIV AIDS, which is a chronic inflammatory condition that many people have lived with for decades now, we often look at people 50 and older and consider them as older adults within those special populations. And 
It is true, however, that we will all experience many physiologic changes as we age. And often these physiologic changes, which are completely normal, and for each person often very individual, so some people may have more heart impact or physiologic aging, other people may have more brain or bone physiologic aging, so different systems may age differently, one person to the next. But what we do know is people also have more medical conditions, so not normal things, um, diseases, illnesses, and then together, the regular physiologic aging that's happening underneath, and then conditions, medical conditions that may be impacting that person's health and function are working together to create a certain picture of someone's physiologic reserve and vulnerability. And so things that we commonly see physiologically that are completely normal is reduced kidney function, losing muscle mass and gaining some fat, losing uh, what we call vital capacity and VO2 max, but that's basically exercise capacity, someone's ability to manipulate um, oxygen exchange, decreased cardiac output and stiffening of blood vessels in the heart and, and throughout the body, a little bit slower reaction times and decreased recall in terms of brain function, and then extremely common is losing some ability to see and hear. Then biologically, we know that there are some things that are happening normally and not normally that really make older adults vulnerable to climate emergencies that we know are coming. So the, one of the biggest ones is older adults don't thermoregulate as well. So they don't often get the same cues for thirst, for I'm hot, I should take my sweater off, or I'm cold, I should put a coat on. They don't have the same uh, sweat reaction or um, you know, hair standing up on end to help uh, with cooling. So that is a big factor, particularly with heat emergencies, obviously. The other one is because chronic conditions like lung disease and heart disease, and in fact, many people have more than one, are so common, that is a big factor at play as well because that makes them more susceptible to the various things that we see with climate emergencies. Again, this idea of decreased physiologic reserve because of physiologic aging in many organ systems just means you have a little bit less bounce back if you're to be stressed out, physically stressed, biologically stressed. The sensory impairments are really important because it means how you react to an emergency or are able to advocate for yourself. Cognitive changes are an extremely important part of this. While it's not normal to have dementia, which means you have lost a certain ability, cognitive ability, about 10% of all people over 65 and 30 to 50% of people over 85 will have dementia. And that is at least something we need to consider. And then as I already mentioned, there's some element of slower processing with age. And then a big one is one that is something that the medical system does to older people. Older adults are on so many more medications than people younger, and the medications have a big impact on a, a body's ability to respond to a physiologic stress. We also know that there are many social vulnerabilities in older age groups. Poverty is really undermeasured, so the formal poverty rate is 9%, but actually when you look at better measures, so there's a new measure, the supplemental poverty measure that looks at out-of-pocket medical expenses as well as just income and housing costs, uh, it, it's at least 15% of the general older population. But those rates are much higher for poverty as people get older, so you get poorer as you get older, for racial minorities and for women. All those groups tend to be even poorer. We also know that older adults are fairly socially isolated and about a third of older adults in most cities live alone. The digital divide is not a well-described social vulnerability um, yet. There's increasing research on this, but the digital technology is obviously essential to our life now, and for the most part has not been designed for older people and remains a huge challenge in adding to a measure of safety to older people's lives. Older adults are more likely to live in a congregate housing setting, like an assisted living or a nursing home. And then many, up to a third of people 70 and older, need some daily or regular assistance for their personal care. And that makes them vulnerable. They need human hands. So 
I'm sure many other speakers have touched on this, and this is one way I like to think about it. This was produced by the American Public Health Association, that major climate change emergencies have clear impacts on human health. We have the evidence. We now know that this is the case. And rising temperatures is one. Extreme weather is another. Air quality worsening is another. And then the increase in vector-borne diseases is another. And I'm going to go through each of these. But why is it such a stressor? Um, Just as a big picture concept, you're susceptible to climate change emergencies, physiologically, biologically, because of several factors. The amount of exposure you have to the emergency or the factor like heat, the sensitivity you have innately. So again, someone on a medication that dehydrates them might be more susceptible to a heat emergency. And then how adaptable you are. So again, how much bounce back you have in your physiologic system. How much can you adjust either practically or physically, biologically. And so we know that older adults have heightened vulnerability in all these areas because, again, many are poor and in poor housing or congregate housing that may affect increased exposure. Many are increasingly sensitive because of intrinsic physiologic factors like reduced kidney function or are less able to adapt They don't have the same thermoregulatory clues. They have a disability that prevents them from getting to cooler ground. They may have a cognitive disability and not know how to advocate for themselves if they're not feeling well. So specifically with rising temperatures, we know that that leads to more heat stroke and dehydration, cardiovascular complications, and respiratory illness. And we know that, um, as I've already described, The heat impact itself may be heavier because of the less ability to thermoregulate or move to a cooler location and take corrective measures like drink a lot of ice water, get a fan in front of you. Again, for all the reasons I described, like cognitive impairment or vision impairment or mobility impairment, the issue of medications should be considered. And then air pollution, interestingly, worsens with heat. It keeps more particles in the air, and that's one of the main things linking it to respiratory illness and cardiovascular hospitalizations and deaths. I briefly want to touch on medications because this is obviously something that really is a common factor, and because many adults are on five or more medications on a regular basis, and some of the most common ones are some of the most challenging ones for managing someone's heat response. So for example, diuretics, which we commonly call water pills, things that get swelling out of your legs, often used in heart failure. Um, One example is furosemide, that's a very common one, also called Lasix. Another is what we call ACE inhibitors, uh, longer name angiotensin converting enzyme inhibitor or angiotensin II receptor. So those are called ARBs. Those are blood pressure medications. They affect kidney function and therefore your ability to manage dehydration. Something called anticholinergics. Those are things often um, anti-spasm medications for back pain or bladder medications. And then medications that you don't necessarily advertise themselves as being anticholinergic, but Benadryl, Dramamine, those can also affect ability to sweat um, and therefore cool. And then finally, there's um, significant evidence that psychotropic medications affect your brain's ability to thermoregulate. So that includes things, antidepressants like SSRIs. Those are very common, like Prozac, Zoloft, things like that. So these are just very common medications and something to consider. Then extreme weather, how does that impact health? Um, I think it's clear, like we saw with the flood picture, the ability to flee or take cover, um, the significance of a serious injury to an older person may be greater than in a younger person. And then extreme weather we know causes flooding, which causes increase in waterborne illnesses, which can be quite severe, like giardia or cholera, cause a lot of diarrhea and be deadlier in older people. We also know that air quality, which increases with increased pollution or even increased heat, poor air quality increases with those things can increase ozone in the air and fine particulate matters and then allergic pollens in the air. And all of those things can really affect people with cardiovascular and respiratory illness particularly. 
and then vector-borne diseases. So as things get warmer, we anticipate more vectors like mosquitoes will be in more commonly distributed in places they weren't before. And that will really increase the rates of Lyme disease, malaria, Zika, West Nile. I would say in particular for older adults, West Nile has more mortality uh, and morbidity, which means impact on health overall. So those are definitely things that we are concerned about with growing prevalence of vector-borne diseases. And finally, the things that I think should be included in as well as thoughts about health impacts, but there isn't as much data in older adults, are things like the mental health aspects of worsening climate. And there's, of course, the primary response to this, which is now really an entity that's treated by mental health professionals called eco-anxiety, the fear of what's to come, the fear of losing our stable climate, but also the trauma from all these emergencies. And how are we going to support older adults who are traumatized, um, possibly by emergency situations or just the ongoing stress of climate change related health events? And then the other thing which I really wanted to point out, because if you care for older people, you care for their caregivers and you need to support their caregivers. There's umpteen tomes of evidence about how caregivers truly are the foundation of health for people who have functional needs. And to not consider caregivers in the context of growing climate change health emergencies would be unwise. And I think the Sonoma fires gave some example of that, that caregivers are putting their health on the line too. So what can you do personally? I think at times this can be a really overwhelming health issue. But one thing for sure, we will all experience some of this differently. Local risks are different. And the truth is that it has been shown that heat waves are different in different places. So a heat wave in San Francisco or Oregon, where our average temperatures are much lower than Arizona, will be different. People are more acclimatized in Arizona to warmer temperatures, despite being maybe the same age with the same chronic conditions. But it's been shown that deaths increase more in a relative sense. So if you have a relative heat wave, you should still be concerned, even if it doesn't reach an absolute number. So that's one thing to consider is just think about your local environment and what are the risks that are most likely to occur. Be aware of your own personal risks. So medications you're on, conditions, functional needs you have, and plan accordingly. And then I think we can start to reach out more and more to our local communities, governments, public health departments that are planning for these things. Look at local resources. For example, my neighborhood has a neighborhood emergency response team and working with them to be aware of the older adults in our neighborhood that might need help before anybody else, should there be an emergency situation. And then things like registering with your local power company to indicate that you may be a higher risk person if there was a power shutoff. For example, you require a breathing machine at night for sleep apnea, or you have an oxygen tank that needs a um, powered, uh, oper- yeah, pow- sorry, a powered motor to deliver oxygen. So reaching out as far as we can, but we all know that there's a larger context here and that part of solving and reducing climate change health emergencies will be a societal and global solution, not just a personal one. But I do think there are things we can do. So the take homes today for the health impacts of climate change on older adults specifically is that we are an aging society and the impact of climate change on older adults will be an important issue in the future. A particular older person, however, should be considered in all of their contexts and may particularly be vulnerable to certain outcomes because of a combination of social and physical factors. And so we should be thinking about where someone lives, what resources they have, and what conditions and medications they have in trying to come up with a personal plan to help them uh, should something like a climate change emergency really affect them. So thank you so much, everyone. It's really been a pleasure to be part of this panel presentation and conversation. I'm really looking forward to your questions, and I'm always available at anna.chodos at ucsf.edu. Thank you. I just want to say that I'm so grateful for the attention that all of you, everyone participating in tonight's event, uh, are paying towards what is, I think, 
arguably the true existential crisis of our time. I don't see how we can look at the state of the world and not be aware of the impending danger that climate change uh, poses, uh, unlike anything that the world has faced for many, many centuries, uh, if not millennia. And I have mixed feelings about how the COVID-19 crisis is directing us. On one hand, it is such an indication of the importance of a global response to a pandemic that is impacting um, literally every, every one of the seven plus billion people on the planet. And so in a way, maybe this, maybe the pandemic is um, providing us some insight and guidance into the way we should look at what is also a crisis, but unfolding in a different time scale, and that is climate change. But on the other hand, I'm deeply concerned about the negligence uh, that so many people seem to have towards science and facts and um, an understanding of the true reality of the pandemic. So, um, boy, I hope that we can pull this off. Um, I hope that we don't come to a point similar to the pandemic with climate change in which we look at what's happening around the world and say to ourselves, how could we have possibly let this happen given everything that we've known? How, it's almost like it's unbelievable, like what we're saying about the pandemic, right? Like it's unbelievable that this is happening. It's almost like a fantasy. It's, it's almost like a dysphoric science fiction uh, 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 movie. But in that regard, I wanna direct all of you towards what I think is one of the best pieces that have been, that's been written about the pandemic. And that's something by um, Charles Yu in The Atlantic last month. Just look it up, Charles Yu, The Atlantic. And the title of his essay is The Pre-Pandemic Universe Was the Fiction. The pre-pandemic universe was the fiction. And his thesis is that we shouldn't be thinking of now as a fiction. We should be thinking of the way we were thinking before the pandemic, in which none of us could really believe that something like this would happen, that COVID-19 could, could wrap itself around the globe. That was the fiction. And I think there's a real analogy to the way many people uh, on this planet are thinking about the threat of You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.